This is the Wealth Ability Show with Tom Wheelwright. Way more money, way less taxes. Welcome to the Wealth Ability Show, where we're always discovering how to make way more money and pay way less taxes. Hi, this is Tom Wheelwright, your host, founder, and CEO of Wealth Ability. So the big news at the end of January was not the uh, trial of a former president, was not the coronavirus. No, it was trading. <laughs> it, was the, it was the grassroots traders versus Wall Street in the epic Robinhood uh, AMC uh, GameStop trading frenzy is the best way I can put it. And uh, a lot of people ask me, so, you know, what's really happening? And, and uh, I'm very lucky because today I have two special guests, um, Andy Tanner, who's the author of Stock Market Cashflow, um, which is a Rich Dad Advisor book and a fellow Rich Dad Advisor um, with me and a good friend of mine and my uh, business partner in software development, uh, Ryan Husk, who is a young entrepreneur um, in Silicon Valley. And so, <laughs> who was in the middle of all this? So I, this is just too much fun to not do a podcast on. And, uh, and, and really, I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned. And so what will come, just like we always do on the Wealth Ability Show, we'll talk about lessons that, you know, things, things to learn about this, not just that, you know, what actually happened, but what can we learn? And is there a way we can actually um, figure out what we should be doing um, when we when we look at things like this, okay. So Andy, if you just just give us a you know a quick little background, what you're doing up to these days. Sure. Well, first off, thanks Tom for having me and Ryan. It's really good to see you. I've I've known Tom for many and many years. He's not just a teacher of mine, but he's also my accountant. So I'm a client. And uh, Ryan and I, we've known each other. How long have we know each other, Ryan? It's been like five or six years, I think. Not at least. Oh, or, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, it's, it's, it's been longer than that because I've been married six years. <laughs> right. And yeah. and if you recall, Ryan, you were the one um, who spilled, <laughs> spilled the beans <laughs> on my engagement to your mother. Oh. So there's another disclosure. Is, uh, I'm married to Ryan's mother. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I think it's been, I think it's been uh, probably seven or eight years, you guys. Years. Wow. It's, fun and it's, it's going by really quickly. You're getting old, Brian. It's good. I know. I <laughs> so yeah, just a little bit about me. Tom kind of covered it. Um, my book is Stock Market Cash Flow. I've been a rich dad advisor for many, many, many years. Uh, you know, Robert Kiyosaki has taken Tom and I very gracious uh, all over the world together. We've had the chance to teach together. So you know, my phone's been blowing up for sure. People sense you know, is there opportunity here? Is there not? And there certainly is. It's a high risk opportunity. Uh, some people got in, got out. So we'll uh, we'll talk about it. I think the thing I can maybe help people is to understand what happened, and uh, you know what's going to happen. I have no idea, but I think I can <laughs> I can opine uh, I can opine on it. But it is a, an interesting story. So that's me. You don't want to try and read the tea leaves. <laughs> no, no. I guess. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. So Ryan, tell us a little bit about uh, what you're doing and and uh, where you are. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for asking me to join you guys. Uh, Andy, it's always so nice to see you. Um, Tom, same with you, of course. Uh, so a little bit about me. I'm based in the Bay Area uh, in San Francisco. 
Uh, I am an entrepreneur. I am an advisor for 500 startups with um, products and partnerships. And then I'm also an entrepreneur in residence for the Startup Growth Lab. Uh, and then I'm uh, about to start a permanent role with Twitter doing strategic partnerships as well. So uh, my area of focus is typically product development and partnerships in the tech field. And I'm an avid Robin Hood retail investor, as they would say. Um, but I did get my um, first education directly from Andy. So everything that I've done, mistakes or not, um, most of them have turned out pretty well. And I can thank Andy for a good foundation for that. Awesome. So uh, let's get right into it, Andy. Um, can you yeah. just, and, and Andy's going to share a screen. So if you're listening to this, I encourage you to go and watch it on YouTube as well. Um, Andy's really good at describing what he's drawing. But Andy, just tell us, basically, tell us what happened. And then uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe explain not just what happened, but what might have happened to certain individuals. And we'll let Ryan pipe in on what happened in his... Yeah. Yeah, so to understand what happened, we start with understanding what a short position is. Um, that's jargon, right? We have long positions and short positions. And even though I'm like mortified and intimidated drawing a financial statement uh, with an accountant here in the room, uh, I'm going to do my best uh, to describe it this way. We have income and we have expenses, and that's opposite. You might even look at that as opposite. You know, income is the opposite. Income is money coming in and expenses is money going out not good or bad uh just opposite we have assets those are things that we own and then we have liabilities and those are also opposites and what's really interesting is to uh put something in this column as an asset uh you would buy and that's what puts something here and if we want to put something in the liability column one common way to do it is to borrow and what's really interesting is, you know, I talk a lot about cash flow, but if we just talk about net worth for a little bit or equity, if I put something, this is kind of fun education, I think, Tom, if I put something in this column and it increases in value, my net worth would increase. And if I put something in this column and it decreases in value, guess what? My network would increase. And right. I think, Tom, that that's, that is worth talking about this all by itself, right? If there's any good that sure. came from all this, you know, Reddit stuff and all the bait, the, the hedge funds getting their butts kicked, it's that someone maybe even for the first time watching this can say, oh my gosh, there's two ways I can increase the value of my balance sheet. I could either, I could either buy things that I believe are going to appreciate in value, or I could borrow things that I believe are going to go down in value. Now, when you put numbers in this, people start to get confused. But if you just look at it conceptually, it gives me, it doubles my opportunity in my life. I say, hmm, I'll go hunt for things that I think can go up in value. And I'm going to go hunt for things that go down in value. I'll buy the things that are going up, but I could also borrow the things that are going down. So if we're going to take a short position, we would have four steps to that. The first thing I would do is I would borrow something that I felt was going to go down in value. In this case, uh, there were many, many, many hedge funds that would borrow uh, the stock. So if I'm a hedge fund over here, and uh, and I'm just you know over here happy for the moment, 
and there's a brokerage over here, let's just say, and there's clearing houses and, you know, a lot of stuff here, but let's just call it a brokerage. And I say, hey, I would like to borrow some shares. Uh, let's just do one share of GameStop to make it simple. Can we, is that okay, Tom, if we yeah, use small perfect. So here's, here's uh, one share of GameStop. So now this hedge fund owes one share of GameStop. And that's what it is. Now, GameStop, let's put their chart up here. And let's say GameStop is trading at $10 a share, just for fun. $10 a share is where it's trading. And they believe it's going to go down. That's their imagination that it's going to go down. And so what they do is, you know, they'll, they'll sell it to an investor and they sell those shares for cash. So on their balance sheet, they would have cash that they hold, but they still owe that share. Think of when you have a mortgage, you know, you get a check, you can get cash two ways. You can go earn it in your business or you can borrow it, but either way you have it in your hand. And if you take that cash and buy a house with it, you still owe the, the money to the bank. Well, here, even though they sold this or they trade away, they sell it away, you know, they still owe the brokers those shares. Well, in order for them to do this, they not only have to have the cash they got for it, but they have, some, have to have some extra just in case. Hopefully for the hedge fund, they would say, well, now if it goes down to $5, so let's pretend it went down to five, now they could buy back at five. So they, they uh, send $5 out, they brought 10 in, they send five out, and then they can return the shares to the brokerage, right? They get the shares back, and I'll be darned when it's all said and done, uh, they just made five bucks. So, 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 so Andy, if I can stop you there just for a second. Just, so most people thinking that think about the stock market is, well, the goal is to buy, um, buy low and sell high. And you did. The difference here is that they've, they, what they're trying to do is sell high and then buy low. So it's really That's just right. the order of things. It's not that it's different in what you would do otherwise outside maybe the borrowing, but in any case, you're still buying and selling. You're looking at hopefully selling it higher than you're buying it for. Yeah, that's right. You're still buying low and you're still selling high. It's just in the opposite order because it's going the opposite direction. And the only way you could do that is to borrow. In fact, people that own real estate actually do the same thing. They borrow, they take the money, trade it for the house, trade it back for rent and pay their payment, right? One, two, three, four. So uh, very, very simple. Well, this is all fine and dandy if it goes down, but what, what if it goes up? You know, what if it goes up to $20? Well, that's a problem because they owe a share. Well, it's a problem for the hedge fund, right? It's a problem for the hedge fund. They owe a share. They only received $10 when they sold at 10, right? So if it goes to 20 and they have to buy at 20, if they have to buy back at 20, they're going to lose $10. And so there's something called a margin requirement. REQ, a margin requirement that says, hey, you have to have enough cash on hand, hedge fund, to prove to us that you can keep your promise, that you can buy that back and return what you've borrowed from us. We want our shares back. And so if the price goes up, they'll get something called a margin call. And they'll, they'll call the hedge fund and say, hey, look, this thing's going up. You have a choice. And this is an ultimatum. You can either A, Go deposit more money in your account to cover this margin requirement, or 
you know, you, you're going to have to liquidate these positions at this $20 loss. What do you want to do? And that puts people in what's called a short squeeze sometimes. The hedge fund might believe, you know what? Maybe this rise is temporary. Eventually, go back down. Let's just dump some more money in for margin requirement. But what if it goes to 30? And what if it goes to 40? Well, here's what people really ought to know about uh, shorting a stock is it's, it's extremely risky, and here's why. If I enter a position and I say, you know what, I think I'll buy it right here, and I will uh, enter a position here, and I'm going to own the stock, so I'm long. I'm going to own the stock. Then I might you know, have a target, and it could be infinite how high it could go. It could go any amount of height. But if, uh, if it goes down, my max loss is zero. Well, if I enter a short position, it's just the opposite. If I enter a short position, which means I borrowed and sold, which means I borrowed and sold my stock, I'm, I need to wait for it to get it back. Now my upside is to zero, but my downside is infinite. And so there's more risk in a short position because as that stock climbs, there's no ceiling on how much money they can lose. So as GameStop, as GameStop began to go to $20 and 30 and you know, 100 and 200, these hedge funds were getting margin calls saying, look, you need to prove to me that you can buy it at 200 and give me my shares back. You need to prove to me that you can buy it at 300 and give me my shares back. You need to prove me we can buy it at 400 and give me my shares back. And as it kept going, they were in what's called a short squeeze. Well, eventually the hedge funds run out of money and the uh, broker says, sorry, we're going to force the sale. So they got to take the hit or they're forced to sale. And that's why these hedge funds lost. And in my opinion, I'm just going to opine here, Tom, they deserved to lose. Well, they, they did. And here's the way I look at this, Andy. So the word hedge. Right. Let's think about Bingo. that word. Right. The whole idea you hedge your bets. A hedge fund, by definition, should never lose massive amounts of money because the whole point is that they've hedged their bets so that right. they're making a, they're they're hitting a lot of singles, but no home runs, and then they don't strike out very much either. Right. I mean, that's basically the way I look at it, and yeah. and that's really all that's going on. And if, if if you have a hedge fund that doesn't hedge its bets. I mean, to me, it's not really a hedge fund. It's just a gambler. Yeah, and they really were. They really were a little greedy, you know, trying to have a lot of risk. This is nothing new. There's an interesting story of Herbalife where Bill Ackman took a short position, made a lot of press saying, hey, they're an illegal pyramid scheme. The SEC should shut them down and, you know, really wanted to go after them. And Carl Icahn says, I don't like really like Bill. I got deep pockets. Maybe I'll start buying the stock. So... So Carl Icahn started buying Herbalife and boy, there's old uh, Bill Ackman sweating it. And pretty soon, you know, Carl, Carl won. He said, hey, uh, you got to cover your shorts. Here's, here's where, you know, Ryan, we can shift to him and talk about, you know, maybe the Reddit group because, you know, these guys, you know, either one or two things happened uh, and I'll let Ryan fill me in because I wasn't on the Reddit board. I wasn't reading it. But my feeling is, is they would say, okay, these hedge funds have put themselves in a very vulnerable position. They are so, GameStop had a massive short interest. I mean, one of the top, if not the top in the market. Their fundamentals were very, very weak. 
they had a little bit of cash, well, quite a bit of cash, but they did not, you know, they were having innovation issues. Are they going to be able to not be the next blockbuster who fell victim to streaming Netflix? And so one story is, is these Reddit guys says, well, we like our little GameStop. We don't want it to go the way uh, Blockbuster is. Let's buy it and own it and save it uh, as shareholders. The other story would be someone saw these hedge funds were way overextended and they're like, let's go buy the heck out of this and stick it to them. So which one of those is true? I don't know. I'll leave that to Ryan to tell me because I didn't, I wasn't on the Reddit board. Thanks Andy. That was, a, that was a terrific explanation. At least I can tell you what a short is and what happened to these hedge funds. That, that was a terrific explanation of a short. Um, and, and uh, you know, really interesting because when I look at this, we can apply this in our investing lives because we do this all the time. We just do it in a different order or we might do it, for example, with real estate where we're borrowing cash. Mm -hmm. And if the cash goes down in value, then then we make money on the on the borrowing side, and we also make money on the selling on on the on the uh, investments. If you think about this, this is why people say that real estate is such a good in inflation hedge, okay? Um, because it does multiple things, and and one of the things it does is it bets against the dollar. Okay, so let's uh, let's let Andy walk through this. So I'll use a little different language here rather than sell because I think it's even better. It's called an exchange, right? It's called a trade, the Chicago Board of Trade, the New York Stock Exchange. So let's call it a trade. And what we really do is we borrow, we trade it or sell. You know, we could say that's a sell here. We trade back, which is a buy. And then we return whatever it is that we borrowed. And it can be a stock. It could be a cup of sugar. It could be your neighbor's lawnmower. It could be an iPhone. It could be anything. So this is kind of interesting in real estate. Um, the first thing in real estate you do is you borrow cash. Maybe you borrow $100,000. The second thing you do is you trade it for a house, right? You just house in here. So you're selling your cash when you buy a house. You're selling your cash when you're buying a house. It's really just a what? A trade. You're trading what you borrowed for a house. Now I got to get the money back sometimes. So I can either sell it or I could get rent, which now I've traded back. I've got the money back. And then number four is what am I going to do with number four? I'm going to return this when it's worth less because 30 years down the road, uh, those those dollars are worth much less. In fact, that's why banks have to amortize. If so, banks so the return here is paying back the mortgage, right? That's your payment. That's, that's the amortization of the mortgage. Yeah, it's your payment. And if they didn't amortize, they'd amortize, they'd lose every time because usually after 30 years, you know, those dollars are much less valuable when they go back to the bank at the end of that 30 years than they are when you borrowed them. So as a trader, I don't see, you know, real estate so much about the house I see it from the beginning of what? Borrowing cash, trading cash away for a house, getting cash back with rent, and then uh, returning it to the uh, to the uh, bank. So, right. and, and Andy, to go to to go to your earlier point, you're making your net worth goes up as the house goes up. That's right. Right, and your net worth goes up as the as the value of cash goes down, and that's called inflation. Yeah, it's pretty cool because it's really a bet on inflation because this is going to be fixed if you're smart, probably fixed, right? And so let's see what happens if the dollar goes down. Well, 
first of all, the debt gets paid down anyway, but the value of that debt goes down. Right. Um, your asset price is going to go up, even though the square footage is the same. You know, the, the number of shares you own is the same, but the price goes up. The, the square footage of the home goes up. The ounces of gold is the same, but the inflation makes it go up, just takes more dollars to buy it. Rent goes up. This is yep. fixed. And of course, you know, your, your net income or your cash flow would also go up. So look at this. If you're short the dollar, rents go up, asset price goes up, uh, debt's value goes down, cash flow goes up. That is the formula for investing. And the Federal Reserve says we have a goal of 2% inflation. If they achieve that goal over 30 years, that's not a bad investment right there. I want to take a moment to tell you about Norada Real Estate. Are you having a hard time finding great investment properties? Unfortunately, the best deals are rarely found locally. Successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets. Narada Real Estate Investments provides you everything you need to invest in some of the best deals around the country. Everything from turnkey rental properties to mortgage financing to property management. Visit their website to learn more and download your free copy of The Ultimate Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing at turnkeyrealestateinvesting.com. That's turnkeyrealestateinvesting.com. So Andy, true story. So uh, several years ago, I had uh, you and I, um, you, you, you'll know who I'm talking about. I, I had an argument with a gold guy, right? And he, he said, does. best inflation hedge. And I said, help me understand how it's better than real estate. And he, could, he, he couldn't even... He could not explain that. And I'm going, because it's not, because, no, because, because right. um, it's a, your, your, your debt actually is very proportionate where gold is swings wildly is manipulated, et cetera. But your, but your value, your cash absolutely changes exactly proportionate to your inflation. And on top of that, you're getting rent and your rent's going up. And then your, your, yeah. your real estate hey. going up. And, <laughs> and, and the argument we had was, he said, I'm going to just let the gold go up and then buy real estate. I'm going, by the time you, no, you're, you're, you're losing that way. Right. Just the opposite. What you should be doing is you should be buying all the real estate now. And then when, when it, everything, all things go up, then buy gold. Then sell your real estate and buy the gold. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I'm a big fan of gold and I own. Um, I as as, as I do I, but I own it. I, I own it primarily as a safety net. If I sell my gold for $100,000 an ounce, that means bread is $200,000 a loaf. Right. I, exactly. I mean, if, if gold goes up, stocks are through the roof, real estate's through the roof and food, clothing and shelters through the roof. So right. there you I, have it. I look at it as if, if, if I'm selling my gold, I'm in trouble. Okay. It's really a store of value. So Ryan, all right. So back to uh, Reddit, to, to Robinhood, to GameStop. Tell us what happened from your stand. You were in the middle of this as an investor. You, I know you're you're on social media a lot. You're you're watching the stuff. This is your profession anyway. So tell us what happened from your perspective, just from your perspective. Well, so I think Andy kind of asked two questions. Was like, are people rallying around this sort of nostalgic brand because they think there's more value here, or are they trying to stick it to Wall Street? And I think the answer to his question of which one it is, the answer is yes. 
um, both of those things. So the first- That's what I suspected. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I think GameStop is a brand that people recognize that a lot of people who are at the age of, um, that grew up playing video games are now playing the Wall Street game, especially on apps like Robinhood. What's been very interesting is that there's been um, an education, an opportunity to take education um, and implement it in a way that allows people to play in the stock market when they couldn't do it before um, as easily. And Robinhood is absolutely one of the forms where people have really taken advantage of being able to do that, especially during the pandemic when there's a lot of free time and a lot of people on their phones. So Reddit has a number of subreddits, so sort of communities where people talk about trading, one of them being Wall Street Bets. And Wall Street Bets is the subreddit that uh, has definitely been the topic of controversy. And I think that a lot of people saw how much GameStop was being shorted. Um, and Andy, I think you're right, where it was one of the most shorted stocks. And it was very much being treated as if it was an insolvent company, um, as if they were already bankrupt. And you know that wasn't necessarily true. I think GameStop actually, you know, is is still one of the few places where you can get a lot of both physical and digital content. You know, this year PlayStation and Xbox both released um, new gaming systems, um, and that that's the first time in like five or six years, maybe. GameStop was one of like three or four retails retailers that were able to provide it in large quantities. So it still has a relevant place in um, culture and in retail. And I think that GameStop was looking at, you know, changing their their business a little bit, being more experiential, creating really strategic partnerships, um, looking at online content. And a lot of people were interested in that. Um, like many businesses, um, GameStop was obviously affected by COVID because they were still a majority retail company. And so anything that's based in a mall or, or something like that is going to be really challenging for the business to continue to succeed. So when you're looking at a stock, if you're looking at the price of game stock earlier this year, where it was like at $6, that's probably, you know, thinking about the market and pricing, probably considerably undervalued. Um, so it started to gain some interest because $6 for a stock, a stock like stock like GameStop, I think, um, is a pretty good deal. At some stage, there starts to be this little bit of a rallying around GameStop and um, through the community, people are talking about, you, you know, they're doing research. You have people within the community who are certainly amateurs, but you also have people in the community who make their living doing trades and sharing their wisdom on Reddit the same way that you might find, you know, content that you guys create on, you know, on Facebook, right? You know, it's a platform for people to share their knowledge. At some point, there began to be more and more institutional investors shorting GameStop and you started to see this in it and it very truly became like we're going to push against this you know we believe in this company we want to support this company and you know as, as much as the stock market um and the economy you know we kind of like to think of them as very structured but they're truly very emotional and reactive in a lot of ways to what's going on in the current time and place and so because there are people behind that. And so you started to get people behind um, Reddit who were really, really frustrated that the stock that they're investing in, they believe in, was getting pushed down because of the institu institutional investors that wanted to short it because they thought it would go down. And in some ways it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you get enough institutional investors shorting the stock, it will go down. So they started to push back and they started to get people together. You know, there is Wall Street Bets is one of, you know, probably several dozen communities on reddit that 
has retail investors involved and they decided to organize and that's something that's really interesting and you know it's kind of like you know the only thing i i can think of from my you know limited financial historical knowledge is you know it's sort of the reverse of a run on the banks right like everyone instead of going and saying give me back my money they were saying take my money i believe in this i want to put it in here i know it's risky there are people who've put money into gamestop that truly aren't looking to get out of it but more they believe it's more important to make a statement so you also have the people who actually believe it's a good long-term investment so you've got both sides okay so the other thing you said is that maybe it was an opportunity for them to you know go after the hedge funds right so explain that side of it what what were you reading what were you seeing in that in that that whole reddit discussion about uh, that side of things yeah who who let you know what i think is most fascinating ryan is that they were able to organize a grassroots movement to to buy it I'm not convinced everyone that was buying it was financially savvy. Um, I think there's a lot of Robin Hood investors that have no clue what they were doing. They're just like, yeah, I want to be part of this, you know, caught up in the movement of it. So I'd like to see what was the message that they said, hey, you know, risk your money in this because it was very risky. It's, it's absolutely very risky. I think you have a lot of people who dabble in investing, you know, Robinhood is great because um, it makes investing incredibly accessible and removes a lot of the barriers you might have in traditional investing with finances and um, knowing the definitions of things. Um, so that's a good thing for some and it makes it significantly more risky for others. So yes, there are people who do not necessarily know the risks that they're getting into, but that's their, that's their choice to make, I guess. In terms of the people who sort of want to stick it to the man, um, you know, I can't repeat everything. Reddit is not necessarily a um, PG-rated place, the language that you find on there. Um, although I would probably say you probably hear the same language uh, yeah, if you it, it's went good to, to Wall Street. Right? Nobody, nobody in this crowd is going to um, uh, object to free speech. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily repeat some of the things that I would hear, but there is there's a sentiment that you know there's absolutely a division between people of working class that come from or that are that are retail investors that are you know doing their best to learn. You know there are, I I can't tell you how many times I've probably heard you know people say you know if you want to grow wealth you need to learn to invest you need to make this thing and you know there. Are, caveats there, I think, but a lot of people felt as though they were starting to make investments and they were trying to do this, but they were facing roadblocks that were put on them that they didn't see the same roadblocks putting against professional investors or hedge funds. Mm -hmm. And so the idea was, you know, a stock is worth how much someone will pay for it. And if you continue to get enough people to buy that stock, you will increase the value. You know, this is, I, it, you can say that this is an isolated incident, but we could also look, you know, before all of this blew up, I think it was last Monday, Elon Musk tweeted a very simple tweet that said, I love Etsy and Etsy stock shot up like 48%. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's one person leading that, you know, I think our, we saw a lot of the time our former president would speak about companies and they would shoot up or they would fall based on what 
someone would say there's are plenty of people that have influence over the stock market. What's really interesting about this though, is that there is not necessarily a single leader or a single voice in this movement. Mm -hmm. It is people who have coalesced around an idea. That first thing that idea started as let's preserve these brands that we believe in. Let's give them a chance to prove that they can continue to do well. Um, and when they saw opposition from institutional investors, they said, okay, we're going to put our money where our mouth is. We're going to double down. We believe that this is that these companies deserve a chance to thrive. And we don't like being told by institutional investors that we can't put our money here and we're going to do it anyway. So it's, I would say there's certainly a piece of this that is um, sort of savvy and thought through from a financial perspective, but there's another part of it where it's emotional. And, you know, I think we can all have a little bit of pride sometimes and we can all get really invested in an idea. And that's also a part of it too. Hey, if you like financial education the way I do, you're going to love Buck Joffrey's podcast. Buck's a friend of mine. He's a client of mine. He's a former board certified surgeon and He's turned into a real estate professional. So he has this podcast that is geared towards high paid professionals. That's who he's geared towards. So if you're a high paid professional, you're going, look, I'd like to do something different with my money than what I'm doing. I'd like to get financially educated. I'd like to take control of my money and my life and my taxes. I would love to recommend Buck Joffrey's podcast, which is called... Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. I hope you join Buck on this adventure of a lifetime. And Ryan, one of the things that um, we always tell our clients, WealthAbility clients, is that you want to become a professional investor, okay? Mm -hmm. And so by you do that by getting really good at one thing, and that's how you become a professional investor, okay? So Andy's a professional stock investor. I'm a professional tax guy. You know, I'm really good at it because I, I spent a lot of time at it. Um, our friend Ken McElroy is a, you know, professional investor in, in real estate. Okay. Cause that's what he does. But I always tell, also tell people that once in a while they say, well, look, like I had a client the other day said, I want to put some money into, and he's a, he's an um, actually energy investor. And he said, oh, and, and he wanted to put some money into a small startup. And I said, okay, as long as you remember that that's not an investment, that's just something you're doing with your money, okay? And I think that's one of the big lessons to recognize here is, is that you really had probably three groups here. You had the, the uh, professional investors, okay? And they were on both sides, okay? You had the institutional investors. Hopefully they're professional. They didn't act too professional, but um, you know, professionals make mistakes too. Then you had the, the truly, um, like you said, Ryan, the people who were very much focused on, you know what, I just want to support this company. Um, it'd be kind of like if uh, when, when um, Andy was younger, he, uh, he, you know, if he bought uh, Blockbuster stock, right? It'd be the, the, basically the same kind of thing. I love this company. You know, I, I think they can do something. I think they can be the next Netflix. Um, they didn't, but you know, he wanted to do that. So he's willing to just put some money in really more more like it's almost more like i'm willing to go shop local even though i pay more okay than shop at walmart or amazon where i'm going to pay less okay yeah. so it's really just i'm willing to put my money where my mouth is 
right? And then I, I, I think there are probably some people that also were amateurs that thought they were investing, okay? And those are the ones that get caught. And I think, Andy, if I- A lot of those, Tom. <laughs> there, there's a, I'll tell you what, I see more of those people. And what's amazing, Andy, is that these are people that are otherwise very savvy and astute in business or in their jobs or in other pursuits but then somehow when it comes to the stock market, they get emotional. And so uh, Andy, my experience with traders, now you tell me, you're, you see a lot more of this than I do, but I see plenty of them. I find that when people make a mistake in investing, it's when they have low emotional intelligence. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, uh, lack of discipline. You know, we wish we could be Mr. Spock and, and, and all this. When gamblers, when you watch gamblers, they exclaim with emotion when they win, they exclaim with despair when they lose. The pit boss is like a piece of cardboard. He just keeps the game rolling. Uh, I like to, I know we're a little over the time we lot of, but if people hung out this far, they're probably interested. There's two things that Ryan said, I think are worth commentary on. The first thing he said is that people can buy a stock for any reason that they want. If they buy it, the price goes up. That's very true. The, the market is indifferent to, I'm gonna, this is another opportunity for a great, great lesson, you know, in this idea, in that, in that prices are only about supply and demand. It's only about the balance of buyers and sellers. So Ryan is exactly right. When it's at $6, that means that half the people think this balance sheet is not valuable, this balance sheet is in trouble, the other half probably thought, yeah, but they have a strong brand. They might turn around, it's worth six bucks to see. So you have this balance at $6. The person in the middle is called a market maker specialist. He or she does not care about the fundamentals of the company. He does not care whether the company's strong or weak. And he's just going to create liquidity back and forth, asking, you know, if there's more sellers and buyers or if there's more buyers and sellers. He will move the price wherever. And so it's very important to understand there is a massive detachment from fundamentals once a company goes public. And the other thing Ryan said is it could go up for any reason. The third thing Ryan said that's really important here is his word accessibility. Is, you know, I, I, I hope I don't get too political, but I have a, a gun that's in a safe. And the reason it's in a safe is I don't want it to be accessible to my children. I'm all for gun ownership, but I'm also really big on education on it. So I think Robin Hood is, is a good and a bad thing, in my opinion. I think it's good that more people get access. I think it's unfortunate that of all the asset classes, uh, paper assets have the most participation with the least knowledge. So that the, the, where, we, where I end this and where I wonder is, in order for GameStop to stay in the 300s, that means people are gonna to have to be willing to pay $300 for it. It's called the greater fool theory. Well, if I'm gonna fall on my sword for GameStop, and I say, I don't care if I lose $350, I'm buying this share and I'm holding it forever to try to keep the price up. But if some of those Reddit people and some of those, those Robinhood people begin to sell, they're selling it to a greater fool than they were and they're not falling on their sword. You know, th these guys are, who, who's going to buy GameStop at 500 a share perpetually long-term? I see the stock coming back down very rapidly. 
because I don't think there's enough people to keep it sustained and keep losing and losing and losing because there's not enough people really want to fall on the sword and say, no, I will not sell no matter what. I'll lose $500 before I sell. I think most of them are trying to make money. So besides looking at the investment consequences of these trades going on with GameStop and AMC, et cetera, we need to look at the tax consequences because they are fairly actually extremely significant and have a huge impact on the amount you actually make in trading. We have two different types of gains when it comes to trading and losses, by the way, also two different types of losses. So the first is long-term capital gains. And this is what we typically think of when we think of capital gains. We're, we're thinking of long-term capital gains. I find most people don't distinguish and they need to because the tax consequences are very, very different. We also have short-term capital gains. Now, <laughs> The definition of long-term versus short-term is really easy. So a short-term capital gain is anything where you, you hold it one year or less. And a long-term capital gain is anything where you hold for greater than one year. Okay, so one year and a day, basically. So what's the difference? Well, a long-term capital gain, the first 80,000 of long-term capital gain is a zero tax rate. It's tax-free. And then the next approximately $320,000 is a 15% tax rate. Whereas your short-term is ordinary income, which can be taxed as high as 37%. Now, I'm just talking about federal. We're not even talking about state taxes. But let's stick with federal taxes now. Let's say that you did really well on that trade. And let's say you made $100,000. Okay, now you've got salaries and so forth. But let's say you made $100,000. So here we have $100,000 gain. If this were long-term, how much would this be taxed at? Well, if this were long-term, 80,000 would be free and 20,000 times 15%, or we pay a total of $3,000 in tax on this. Now let's say we're in a 35% tax bracket, ordinary, ordinarily, okay? Not that hard to get into a 35% tax bracket. So if we're in a 35% tax bracket and it's short term, then we're gonna take that $100,000 times 35%, or $35,000. So you have a $32,000 difference. Okay. So that means that $100,000 here, if we had a, let's say we made 50%, okay, we have a 50% gain here. So if we had a 50% gain, we need to subtract out, we really only get 65% of that, okay, is our net. So 65% of 50%. Okay, is roughly a third less. So it's uh, it, it's it, you're looking at about thirty, not bad, right? But you lose about a third of it. So you're looking at about a thirty-three percent gain, right? So that's your net gain. But in a long term, fifty percent is like fifty percent, right? 
So you lose $3,000. So you lose what? Less than, you know, like 5%, right? So you're losing 5% of your gain on, you know, 50% here. So 50% long-term gain is really a net of about 47%, right? So this is a big difference between 47% and 33%. So you give a lot of money back to the government when you do these short-term trades. Okay, on top of that, losses from trading stocks typically can only offset gains. So you, it doesn't, if you have losses, it doesn't come off your rest of your income. Okay, gains are added to the rest of your income. Losses don't come off, they only come off gains. So just, be, just recognize that all gains are not created equal. You, we always have to look at the tax consequence of the gains. And we may think we're making a lot more money than we do. So what do we have to do? That means that that $35,000, we better not go spend that money on, I don't know, video games. <laughs> we better not plan on spending that money or even reinvesting that money. We better set that money aside for Uncle Sam because Uncle Sam's going to come knocking, okay, on April 15th for that money. And actually, if you did this uh, last week, then that means that $35,000 is going to be due this April 15th, not next April 15th, this April 15th. If not, you have penalties. So just remember that when we get good education, it's not just our investment returns that go up. You know, you watch uh, Andy Tanner and, and, and watch our discussions on uh, videos and podcasts like this. And you see that, yeah, you're, you do make more money. And remember also that if you do it right, you can pay a lot less tax. And so this is where a good tax strategy comes into play. This is where you sit down with your tax advisor on every single thing you do, especially any type of trading you do. And when you do, you're always going to make way more money than less tax. You've been listening to The Wealth Ability Show with Tom Wheelwright. Way more money, way less taxes. To learn more, go to wealthability.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.